You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with David Clairbout. He's going to talk to us about his work in a recent show. David, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. David, it's May 2nd. I know you're in Hoboken, but you're you're not in New Jersey. You're, you're south of Antwerp. Is is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We have uh, two studios. Uh, this is the most recent one. And basically, we have two very impractical studios. One is very short and very high, and one is very long and very low. <laughs> so I'm always <laughs> found in either one of them. And what are you working on in these studios now? I, I know you're just back, and you've just had the, the show Dark Optics, which we're going to talk about it, Sean Kelly. But um, what's happening in your studio now? I, I know you're involved in, in yet another project, right? Yeah, since I came back yesterday, we jumped right into the preparation of two new works. One which is um, going to be the life of a virtual tree. So there's basically not much spectacular to be seen except the life of a tree. And um, the catch is that it's growing backwards, so it's getting younger and younger until one day, 12 years from now, um, two men probably will be um, digging it out uh, and taking it away. So that's the only moment where you'll see it's uh, actually running backwards. And uh, the second piece is um, temporarily titled The Exploding Birdcage. And it's going to be the second in a series, which started with a piece called Wildfire, which is, as the title says, about birds exploding in their birdcage during an explosion of a house. And it has a very idyllic chapter uh, in the greenery and by the water, and it has a very aggressive, violent chapter, which brings the camera in the middle of an explosion. And in both cases, in both scenes, actually, the birds are twice seen, once as they're being ripped apart with a very expressionistic, uh, <laughs> um, well, expression on their, on, their, on their little faces. And the second one is the, is, is the birds, a few minutes later, uh, singing along happily uh, in the trees. So <laughs> I, I suppose that makes no hmm. sense at all. But that is no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But but in a one, the, the irony of, of course, is it's it's funny in describing it, and it's always like this a bit in interviews. You know, you have to describe something visual, but we're also talking about imagery and an idea that's very upsetting, right? Yeah. So I mean, that's uh, that's, that's uh, I, I I I get a sense of it, but it sounds yeah, not only cinematic but also um, uh, dis- disturbing. Yes, and they're both soundless so they're very quiet so if it's disturbing at moments in the film it's not being uh, pushed any further by sound or by any uh, audio drama uh, but it's quite meditative so which which adds to the paradox of the film it's that it's both there's a violent part and there's also a very meditative part at the same time if those were unusual elements to bring together, and, um, and, and, and of course some of that also is happening, I, I think, in dark optics, which we'll, we'll talk about, but um, just the kind of scenario you're talking about setting up, which is you know, uh, a narrative, a story, as you've just briefly sketched and, and is just beginning to take shape, uh, it's, 
it's leaving the viewer with something very specific, right? It's it's quite different than uh, than films that people that may come to mind for for people when you when you think of going to a film. But this is a this this is a an immersive experience, as you're saying, meditative. And at the same time, there's something narrative happening in there. There's like two separate mm-hmm. experiences almost, isn't there? Yes, um, I mean, my work is narrative. There's just rarely any dialogue, um, even sound. So it's very often happening through other uh, devices, such as uh, the flow of time, or the change of light, or the change of shadows, or um, a change in sense of technology being used, which um, can appear very strange to viewers. Uh, but rarely is it done with uh, through sequential narrative. So I have a tendency of working for a long time on an image that looks quite minimal or that doesn't change very much. Um, so I'm someone who would work as long on a film that's let's say five minute loop as a filmmaker would make uh, would would produce would use to produce uh, an entire movie. Let's talk about Dark Optics. That's the show that just opened at Sean Kelly on April 27th because that, that also relates to a number of things you're, you've done there. Um, I found this show very powerful and to, to talk about you know, one of the, the films in there, The Close, speaks mm-hmm. to a little bit about what you're saying now, doesn't it? There's, there's your, you're, bringing, you're bringing sound to this and you, you know, it's, it's our role, uh, part vocal composition, which is just right. also, it's just such an extraordinary artist. He's such an extraordinary yeah. um, um, person. So, yeah, the whole thing kind of, um, for me, was, was not only I- immersive, but it, it was doing what you were just saying, right? You're, you're bringing in other elements. You're restoring sound. And, 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 and for me, initially, when I walked in there, it was restoring a whole world, a whole memory, a whole, you, you know, Mm-hmm. something else but there's also something happening there specifically with sound right? exactly and I think the close is uh, probably a good example to talk a little bit about the dark optics um, because uh, it was a film uh, when I started it out some 13 years ago and, and, and then finally realized it three years ago um, I had a, a subtitle for it which is would be something like a short emotional history of the camera, um, and I avoided the term film or cinema, uh, but I really wanted to speak about the apparatus of the camera, and where uh, where the dark optics is situated is the whole question of um, when we think about photography, when we think about cinema, when we think about the use of the camera and the lens and, 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 and the whole culture around this device, do we still think about it uh, in the same terms as, let's say, well, we have a history of more than 150 years of this device. Um, are we still in the same situation or are we moving somewhere else? Is optics, is light still at the core of this language of the camera or is it becoming more a story of information, um, data, language and do the optics 
disappear? Do they not immediately disappear, but do they gradually grow to the background? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe um, that might be what's going on, is that um, the optics part, the light part, um, is fading away. And since 13 years I'm working with virtual image making and I'm starting to understand more and more how computer-generated images work, uh, in how far they, that technology is basically mimicking how, how our brain works and how our nervous system works. And it has taught me one important thing, and that's if you look at the history of technology, and if you look at the history of imaging technologies in more particular, whether you're thinking about um, Hans Mamling or Van Eyck or medieval panel painting, um, or if you're uh, thinking about uh, virtual image making in terms of Pixar or uh, uh, technologies used by Hollywood or by myself. Um, what you're what you're getting at is is the emergence and the evolution of technology within cinema and how that okay, itself exactly. it sounds like has, has has not only taught you know uh, approach to some degree has 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 taught you know uh, you some aspects about this but but that's also if I understand correctly how things are are evolving in your practice. Is that correct? Exactly. And actually what I was thinking about, the way I meant to formulate this is that when we think through history, throughout history, when we look back at technology and more in particular imaging technologies, it's always, it strikes me that uh, there's such a sinking going on between whether it's the age of René Descartes in 1630s or whether it's the age of Sigmund Freud or ours, uh, we, seem to, we seem to be thinking about technology and about imaging technologies as if we were looking back at the way we understand our, our nervous system and the way our visual perception systems are working. And it's as if when we invent technology, this seems to be a direct expression of how we think about um, how our minds and brains and, and optical uh, or visual systems are working. There's such a, there's such a harmony between that, uh, that expression, which I would say is technology. And today, I suppose that would be something, we would be thinking about it as a computer-generated um, image. Many people would agree that, in fact, our brains do look like computers, which, in fact, I disagree with. Um, but that there would be, um, that we kind of even, you know, if only we look at how the way we split up in virtual image making, the way we split up texture, uh, light, shadow, um, specularity, uh, shape, line, well, and and, and, and movement itself, right? Isn't it, isn't it movement itself? I mean, if if I'm if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, in terms of what I also saw at, at the exhibit in in a film like Close, 
there's also a movement that's happening there as you're kind of restoring these films. Isn't there that, 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 that wasn't there initially when we, when we see so many early films or when we used to see early films, they were moving very quickly, for example. Exactly. And is, and, is, is, and is part of the technology you're talking about, about slowing that down so we're literally like kind of reinvigorating these films, these characters, these, these past memories with a new type of life? Right, and, and um, there, is, there is an intimate relation, I think, to the way we look at images and moving images and what I would describe as a familiar system or confidence system, something that we can rely upon to be true, which is uh, exactly what the invention of the camera promised us. And the dark optics maybe then are exactly about this time where we're no longer sure if we are part of that family, where we're no longer sure, um, where we actually have to look twice, permanently, where we once look with the same old habit of trusting, and then a second time with a renewed questioning, with a sharper questioning, perhaps analytical, whether what, what could be the relation between what we're seeing and what we are trusting. And that can be kind of upsetting. And I think it could be upsetting for a whole new generation of, of people who are dealing with, with images and with visual. We're talking content. about trust. You mean the, the, the issue of trust specifically? Yes, of, of, of being, and, and we have that with language as well, is that what we hear, we're, we're trusting it, and, and th there's so much going on in visual culture which is based upon this confidence system, which was why publicity works so well, which is why we look YouTube all the time and moving images all the time. We might not be reading that much, but we, there's, there's a very strong sense of, um, I'm not sure if I would say community, but of going along with what is out there and trusting it. So. And that brings me to um, something that's dear to me is uh, cognitive sciences and the, the phenomenon of the schizophrenic, schizophrenic patient who has, we could say, has a problem with um, combining or trusting his or her own senses and relation to the world out there and who has to permanently, which is very tiring and very upsetting for the patient who has to permanently question whether this or that is worth trusting and is worth living with. Um, and I'm convinced that this is something that we are finding back in the social-political realm as well. In fact, very uh, very pregnant even in the, in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict going on where you're doing so much effort uh, verifying uh, what you think the other party is saying as a bunch of lies. Um, but as we are believers, we're rather believers than, than we are questioning uh, things, um, it just takes so much energy to, to put everything into doubt. And, and I would say this is where, to round up the dark optics, is this is where... Um, I've once upon a time I've labeled it as dark because you might as well close your eyes and look. Uh, indeed, when we close our eyes, we haven't stopped looking. We, we continue looking. 
Um, and I think um, there's also both uh, simply something to be learned and, uh, from dark optics, and, and, and one of it is that, or one of the things to be learned is that uh, we are not, there's no direct pathway from the external world to our brains. Everything is being translated. And we are as much using memory, for example, as we are using our retina uh, to, to observe uh, the world around us. And so the, the fact alone that you would accept that you are looking as much from memory as you are watching and as what you're thinking is a clear and bright optical truth that you're perceiving, that alone is something that's getting used to. Um, so all I'm saying when I'm really talking or when I would like to have some attention for the regime of dark optics is that, look, there is, since the invention of the camera, since the, let's say since the 1840s, um, something quite dramatic has happened to painting and to artisanal production of images. Something which I'm not sure, but I think it's happening to um, the products made by the camera uh, in our time, and that is that we are recalibrating the confidence that we have in that system. We're partly losing it, but we're also recalibrating it, and we have to, it's almost, we have to blink a few times uh, with our eyes before we are actually looking at something. So, um, and from my practice, I think it has long been announced. Uh, it, I've been working with that ever since I started using virtual imagery and ever since I, s I, I said, wow, look, what's going on here? We, there's, we're not actually using optics, but we're using renderings and we're using data and we're using a lot of compromising. Um, we're using options instead of accidents or instead of um, contingencies, which is very much the universe of the camera, isn't it? The camera is out yeah, yeah. there. And it, yeah. yeah, so interesting. And, and uh, I want to also ask about the, the works of paper because, I mean, there's two films in there, but I want to ask before we go about the works of paper that were also in another uh, section of Sean Callery because those are very beautiful, not just in terms of their relationship to the film, which I'd, I'd like to talk about, but also how they were lit was, um, was, was wonderful. It looked like they were lit with kind of perfect rectangles of light around mm. each frame, which, which in itself was um, a way I haven't seen an exhibit lit. Beautiful. As fragile objects, which they're not really, they're rather solid, um, but they're, of course, combined with uh, two video installations. So um, I like to take down the light volume, and I think they did a great job in, in, in framing out those, uh, those drawings, which themselves are a bit of um, uh, an outsider uh, method of um, producing the drawings. They're, they're, I would describe them as hybrids, the way I would describe most of my films. Um, they're partly print, and they're partly made with Chinese ink, uh, acrylic, and white gouache. And so 
the drawings themselves do have something procedural, a way of uh, indirect uh, of producing those images, rather like my. Well, they almost look projected. To, to me, my feeling was they almost look projected. You know, with those with that with that kind of lighting, um, I felt like I was in another screening room almost. Yes, they do have something like there would be old museal fragile artifacts from another time. And the, and the drawings themselves, um, of course, relate to it, uh, the, the, the film. And, um, and, the, and you had a selection of them there. So I was, I was curious into just how those, those drawings were selected because they're kind of portions of the content or they're a different way of accessing what's happening in the, in the film. Exactly. They, they, are, they are drawings that I make towards the end of the production when everything is in the final stages of post-production and we are, um, we are really getting an idea of what the film will be like. So I would say in the last three, four months, um, they are made. And I, I spend my winter time, the dark days, in Northern Europe um, drawing. Uh, because I, to me, they seem to be those moments where I'm actually, <laughs> I feel it's full of light uh, and springtime, but uh, it's, it's midwinter. And they kind of keep me going. And in a way, they're also a conclusion to a film. Um, while most people would imagine that these drawings would be studies prior to the production, um, and I do them at, at, at the, both the beginning and the end, and those series look very differently. The, the ones at the beginning are quite awkward and um, very fragmented, and those towards the end are really much more, um, well, they look more like cell, set stills, um, and it's a way of wrapping up a project which has a tendency of being very fragmenting. Uh, you, could, you could lose uh, your line or your, where you wanted to go uh, with a film because it's, it, it, there's so many, so many different parts involved and so many different processes involved that it's easy to lose where you're going. Um, and those drawings help me uh, getting everything back together. I like that. Yeah, almost, you know, almost as a way of, um, well, it's, it's not as a way of, uh, of of storyboarding, but that it, it, it there's certain markers, you, as you're saying, within the evolution of, of the entire project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're very helpful. Also, they're full of uh, hidden and not so hidden little messages written in them. Um, uh, there's a lot of layers, so there's really a, a, a rather extended palette of grays, and um, at, at different layers in the drawings I will write messages, and those will then be gradually covered over uh, by, by new layers of, uh, of paint and, and so on. So it's, uh, uh, But there was like with the film, this, it might seem like it's all part of a bigger plan, but that's not true, really. It's, it's all quite experimental. And as long as I can, I can find out new ways of doing things, I'm, I'm happy. Well, it's a beautiful show, and, and you know, thank you for talking with me about this. I, I, you know, as 
we've been talking about technicalities, of course, and approach and process, and that's that's what is fascinating here in in, in terms of talking, in terms of being in the space. I, I just have to say it's a an extremely moving experience. It almost you know it feels at once kind of like a memorial and um, and, and so many sensations, especially with the music and the, what seems like yeah restored voice. Uh, very poetic feeling to that space and um and and just to just to give you that that sense of it from for me seeing it was um was transformative in itself had uh, and, and i hope others listening to it see it because it's just one of these shows that that to me is is immersive and it has um for myself a psychological and and, and a very powerful emotional impact well, i'm glad to hear it um i i I wish for, of course, many, as many as possible uh, visitors to see it and to um, not understand, but to maybe feel um, a volume of time and, um, and an image that doesn't have anything, that doesn't communicate uh, anything directly, but that almost communicates as much after the scene as during the scene. And before we go, I want to ask you one more question, which is, uh, what are you reading at the moment? I'm always curious. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm very excited to uh, have started um, what I would call our two bricks um, by English author uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. And some might remember him from a book he published 10 years ago, The Master and His Emissary. He's a neuropsychologist with uh, a past in arts and literature, which makes him um, really interesting. He's got both both feet in in very different territory. And uh, he just published uh, a new book, The Matter with Things, and um, well, I've just started, so I, I can't really say, but it seems to be a very interesting elaboration of um, the topic of divided attention and that we are creatures that do not have a unified attention, but that permanently have two agendas to speak with, um, which we combine uh, spontaneously. And um, I found his work very enlightening and um, brought me to several other authors. So I guess it's a bit niche, <laughs> um, but um, but uh, I find it extremely fascinating. Now that sounds fascinating, and of course fits in with with your work as as well, right? Where and, and again talking about how different systems work together the, the, the brain with what's um with what we're trying to understand and trust and um and and consume right and, and and digest that that seems to touch on a number of things that your work is about and that we've been talking about exactly david i want to thank you so much for talking with me today it's been a pleasure and and i, I wish you well on on your show at sean kelly both shows um because there's it's also concurrently happening in, in Belgium. So thank you so much for, for talking with me. Thank you. It was very pleasant talking to you. Thank you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>